Well, if you can turn back to that passage of scripture found in Genesis chapter 18. And like I said, I'd particularly like to focus on the second part of this chapter together. That's verse 16 to 33. And the title I've given this sermon, you might not have seen in your order of, um, order of service because it's on the second page somewhere, but the title I've given this sermon is God Will Do What Is Right. And in this chapter, I think what we particularly clearly see are two attributes of God's character, his justice and his mercy. And the mercy and justice of God are themes that are found several times in the first few chapters of the Bible because they are essential to who he is. We have to remember, don't we, that Genesis is the book of beginnings. This is where we learn who God is. We learn about man. And so mercy and justice are key to understanding who the Lord God is. Just to give you a few examples very quickly, we see in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve sinned, so they had to be judged. And that's what justice is, isn't it? It's rewarding those who do good and punishing evil. But the mercy of God can be found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the Proto-Evangelium. Evangelicum, I don't know how to pronounce it, my Latin wasn't that good, but those well-known words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his feet. And then not long afterwards, there's Cain, and he murdered Abel. And what was the justice of God? Well, he made him a fugitive and a vagabond. But we see the mercy, don't we, of God? He protected this man. He protected this murderer when Cain cried out to him. Come to Noah. The people were wicked. All the earth did that which was displeasing in God's sight. And yet before he judged the world, Noah was there for 120 years as a preacher, urging people to turn to God. And before Abraham, there was the Tower of Babel. Man's challenge to God. What did God do to these people? He scattered them. He didn't destroy them. His mercy once again seen. And we come to Genesis chapter 19. Well-known passage. It's the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The fire and brimstone that the Lord rained down upon these cities. But once again, before judgment came, God's mercy is to be found. And we see it quite clearly in chapter 18. There are many people out there who seek to use this part of the Bible, to disrepute God's name. And they do so because they forget about the mercy of God. And they solely focus upon these judgments. And it's a current trend we see in society, isn't it? To cancel or disregard anything with which a person or an organisation doesn't agree. This so-called tolerance that people have If anything goes against their ideological beliefs, they try and cancel it. Um, It's not particularly hard to find examples at the moment. We have the whole transgender issue. J.K. Rowling or athletes who speak out against this are forced into silence for fear of abuse. And the church is experiencing this too at the moment. Um, We're allowed to speak about certain attributes of God. They're fine. He's a God of love, a God of compassion. But other parts of the Bible have to be cancelled. There's that bill, isn't there, that they're trying to get through government at the moment to do with conversion therapy. The side effects of this all tie very clearly into these 
chapters that we're looking at today. And people do not want to hear about the justice of God. They don't want to hear about judgment, and they don't want to hear about the consequence of certain things. Because when the Lord says that certain things are not all right, or fine with their lives, they try to cancel it. And it's quite logical, really, isn't it? If you cancel somebody because you don't believe what they say, then they have no interest, actually, in the mercy of God, because in their mind's eye, they don't need it. And so this leaves people with a skewed understanding of God. It makes them blind to who he is, to his character, and it blinds people to the plans that God has revealed he has for mankind that are found in the Bible. So Genesis 18 is a chapter that deals with these hard and difficult topics that people don't like to hear about. But we get an insight into the Lord God and his purpose for the world. And I'd like to start by looking at the Lord's mission, which he had as he came to visit Abraham. Just to quickly remind you of the first few verses of the chapter. In verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham for the first time in person as a human uh, in a, what a theologians call a theophany. Um, Abraham was just sat resting underneath an oak tree in the heat of a Middle Eastern day. And he wasn't expecting this visit. He wasn't prepared for it. But as he looked up, he saw these three men walking towards him. And in an example of godly hospitality, and that is an expectation of all believers, he invited these men into his tents, where he washed the grime of the journey from their feet, and he went and prepared food and drink for them. And whilst doing so and talking with them, Abraham discovers what we as readers know from the very beginning of the chapter, that one of these three men was the son of God, and the others who accompanied him were his angels. It transpired that this wasn't a random visit. And in verse 9 to 15, we have the conversation between Abraham and the Lord, where the Lord reveals his first part of the mission to Abraham. That was to involve Sarah in the promises that he'd made to Abraham, to tell her of the son that was to come, and to strengthen her faith. But before the Lord could bless them through the birth of a son, Isaac, their absolute faith and trust in him to do the impossible had to be bought out. And that's what we see in Genesis 18. But we move on towards the second part of the Lord's mission, and that's found in verse 16. And that's what I'd like to focus with you from now on. Once the men had been refreshed, they'd spoken with Sarah, Abraham accompanied on them on their ways. This is what would have been expected of a host in those days. And that was towards the city of Sodom, the second part of these three men's objective. We see in verse 16, then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom. And it's whilst they were gazing over the plain towards the city of Sodom that the Lord let Abraham know his plans for Sodom. That's verse 17 to 21. Um, if I just read verse 17 to 18, it says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations shall be blessed? And then in verse 20, the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. 
judgment was coming. Accountability for these cities' actions in a day of reckoning before an holy and pure God was coming. It's just worth drawing our attention to for a few minutes how Abraham reacted to God's revelation. Notice he listened and he didn't argue. And when he spoke, he did so in a reverent and respectful manner. Verse 27, for example, Indeed, I am but dust and ashes who have taken upon it upon myself to speak to the Lord. This was not a conversation between equals. In Job 33, verse 13, Elihu, one of Job's friends, he speaks these words of truth. He says to Job, why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. As the almighty and sovereign one over all things, the Lord does not need to give man an account of his actions. After all, a parent doesn't owe a child an explanation of all their actions. And neither does the creator, the supreme God, need to give an explanation of his actions to his creation. And so, there's a small truth in this, and that's this. For people in post-Christian societies like today, who demand that God justifies everything he does, why do you do this? Why do you do that? The Bible tells us that they do so because they do not have a true understanding of who God is, or the mind of God. God is not on our level. God is far above us. And so the Bible actually seems to suggest that those who instantly demand that God justify himself before them are usually the very last people who God will answer and allow to know why he allows such things as suffering and judgment to happen. Job had to wait, didn't he, to the end of the chapter to understand what God's purposes were. He had to have a new understanding of God. The Lord said, I was the one who formed the earth. I threw the stars out. Who are you, Job? Job had to understand his position before the Lord. But as Abraham spoke with the Lord here, we have an entirely different dynamic. James tells us that Abraham was called the friend of God. And one aspect of friendship is opening up your heart to other people. It's telling them what your plans are, what you're going to do, your hopes and your fears. And Abraham was God's friend in covenant love. Just look at the language that we see used in verse 17 and 18. The Lord opens his heart to Abraham. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? How can I hold these things back from Abraham? I'm going to bless him. I'm going to prosper him. He's my friend. I must make him aware of my plans. And that is one of the wonders of the Bible. It lets us know the mind of God and the will of God. And here we see knowledge of his plans in advance. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, you don't need to turn to it, but there's some really pertinent words where Amos says this. He says, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. The Lord was coming to judge. Abraham was his prophet. And God's plans are not a surprise to his people. Some of you may have read some ancient history, and you'll know that ancient pagans were people who lived in fear of their gods. 
They believed that calamities or flooding, the eclipse or pestilence were punishments from their gods. And then what they always had to do was retrospectively try and work out what they had done wrong or what they thought their gods were judging them for and what they had done to upset their gods before they tried to appease them. The true God does not keep us guessing about his plans of judgment and salvation. This is one of the matters of peace that we have as Christians. We have his plans revealed for humanity. We know what the end times will bring. We know about the judgment. We know about eternity that will follow. Abraham was told these things in order that he as father of a nation in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed could pass on this knowledge to his descendants. That's verse 18 and 19. That God is just and God will judge the earth. Judgment could actually fall on Abraham's family as well as Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is because the Lord hates sin wherever it is found. No action or thought is hidden from God's eyes. The Lord came and he saw and he examined the evidence of the wickedness within the city. And they're seen in the next chapter, aren't they, what happens to the angels as they visited Lot. He came down in Genesis 11 to visit the Tower of Babel. And in the times of Noah, we read, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God examines the evidence and then he judges men according to their deeds. And the people of Sodom had chosen to ignore God's precedent for judging sin. And so the question I have for us all here today is this. Do you believe that God is going to judge the world? Because the Bible has much to say about the coming judgment of God on that great and final day when all the things of this world shall pass away and re be replaced with the new heavens and new earth. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, we read this. Because he, that is God, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The Lord has a right to judge and punish sin. If he were to ignore it and sweep it under the carpet, he would be denying his justice and his righteousness. And so whatever man may think, whether it agrees with their philosophies and their theories, God will judge and punish sin. And in doing so, he remains pure and perfect in his judgments. And so the responsibility of knowing that God will judge sin and unrighteousness falls upon all those who hear his word. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in will be burned up. Judgment is coming for this world. But knowing the Lord's mission, let's now look at Abraham's response. If you want to keep the alliteration going, Abraham's mediation. 
Although I suspect your heading in your Bible says intercession, so it's up to you. But Abraham's mediation. And verse 22 tells us that the two angels who accompanied the Lord departed, they went to fulfill their mission of inspecting the city and hearing the prize of the oppressed. Abraham was left standing alone by the Lord. And having heard the Lord's mission, Abraham now found himself in the position of a mediator. He was pleading or interceding on behalf of the people of Sodom. And Abraham was well aware of the sexual depravity that occurred within the city. And I'd like to draw particularly close attention to his response to the Lord. Bearing in mind all that's going on in our world at the moment, in our society, and the attitudes that face us within the church um, towards the sin of homosexuality, for which Sodom was notorious for, I'd like to have a really clear look at how Abraham responds. And I'd first like to express my point in a negative manner, by highlighting what Abraham did not say to the Lord. And his first response was not to say, serves them right, Lord, get on with it and destroy them. In fact, I can't believe it's taken you so long to do it. Can I be the one who pushes the button? I'm sure you may have heard some Christians talking in such a manner to, to all that's going on in society around about us at the moment. An attitude like Jonah's when the Lord told him to go to the city of Nineveh um, and he said no because he took pleasure in the judgment of the Lord destroying the wicked people of Nineveh. Abraham knew that these people were lost sinners and he understood the seriousness and gravity of God's judgment and what it meant for these people to spend a lost eternity outside of him. But Abraham also didn't say this either. He didn't turn to the Lord and say, Lord, can you just ignore the sins of the city and let them all off? Many of those who demand answers today as to why the Lord allows people to be judged do so because they think he's unfair and that he doesn't have the moral warrant to judge the wicked. And I'm sure many of you are aware today, sadly, it's becoming increasingly obvious, especially in certain denominations, that they're preaching that God doesn't mind certain sins, that they'll be forgiven and saved whatever happens, and however they choose, their life is up to them, and therefore everything is okay ultimately, God will let them off. Some people fear to preach this hard and difficult message of sin, but we said earlier, haven't we, if the Lord ignores sin, he will be denying himself as a God of justice, and sin and wickedness must be punished. Abraham was under no such illusions himself as he stood by the Lord in verse 22. And so Abraham dwelt upon what he knew about the Lord's character, the righteous judgment that he intended to bring on Sodom. But Abraham was also troubled in his thinking. Just look at verse 23. Abraham said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked. His nephew Lot dwelt within the city walls. If the city was to be wiped out in its entirety, then those who were righteous in God's sight would be punished alongside the wicked. And Abraham thought, well, a God of justice cannot do that. Noah had been preserved from the flood and his family because they were righteous in God's eyes. 
And so he asked the Lord. He needed confirmation to help build up his faith. Would the Lord slay the righteous with the wicked? But he also intercedes for the wicked city at the same time. Abraham knew that there were some righteous within the city. And there was always hope for the unrighteous while the righteous were in that city. I mentioned Jonah. One man saved a city because he faithfully preached God's word. These souls in Sodom and Gomorrah could still be taken from sin to light. Abraham himself had once been just a pagan moon worshipper until the Lord had graciously revealed himself to him and saved him. So Abraham took his knowledge of what the Lord had done in the past, his knowledge of what the Lord had done in his life, and made these building blocks of faith and understanding of God. This is verse 24 and 25 where he asked the Lord, Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Um, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham was aligning himself to God's will. And this question that he asks the Lord, it wasn't a challenging question like an unbeliever would ask of God, justify yourself. It was a display of faith in God and an affirmation that he would act justly and have compassion on sinners. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so Abraham starts by asking the Lord, if there were 50 people, righteous people, would he save the city? And the reply is in verse 26, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous, then I will spare all the place for their sake. And Abraham's emboldened by what he hears. And he continues forward in his faith and his understanding of God. He asks again, Would the Lord spare the city for 45 righteous people? And back comes the answer, Yes, he would. So Abraham continues down to 40, and the Lord answers, Yes, again. 30, Yes, again. 20, yes again. And by verse 32, Abraham makes his last request. Would the Lord spare the city for 10? And back comes the Lord's response, yes, he would. Then in verse 33, we read, so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. In verse 32, it seems that Abraham sensed he was making his last petition. This was the last plea that he could make for that city. Let not the Lord be angry, but I will speak once more. Ten righteous people. Interestingly enough, that's the minimum number of men needed to form a synagogue. As the Lord departed, Abraham was left with no reassurance that there were even ten righteous people within the city of Sodom. But Abraham made his way home knowing that the judge of all the earth would do what is right. And this is a comforting position for the believer to be in. The situation in Sodom was examined by the angels. And if you just flick over into chapter 19, you'll see that there weren't even ten righteous people. There were only four. So what do we learn from Abraham's intercession? Well, the first thing we can see from Abraham's pleas and the Lord's answer 
is the compassion that the righteous should have towards those who are lost in their sins. And that ultimate compassion can be seen through the love of Christ to his people. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this, he says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It should be this same love that drives us forward in our evangelism, to bring the message of salvation to all those who are lost. Our duty is not to bring judgment on the ungodly. Our duty is to bring the blessings and the grace of the gospel message because that is God's will. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, we read those words, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to him in repentance. Nobody is outside of his grace. There's that reminder in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, yeah, verse 9, of what sins the people within that church of Corinth had been called from. They had been drawn away. There was fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. God had drawn people from all types of backgrounds and all types of sinful nature. But we're also to remember this. The role of a believer as an intercessor for those who are lost in their sin, is absolutely critical for the world outside of God. Do you realise that this entire world is only being preserved right now from the judgment of God by Christians? It's a bold statement to say, but if you look at the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew chapter 13, we learn this thing once again. For people who say, why doesn't God get rid of all that is evil? They don't understand, do they, that if God took all his righteous people out of the world, which he one day will do, then by means of necessity, this world must be destroyed for eternity because we're all under judgment. And one day that will happen. We as the church of God are God's remnant on earth. The Lord put it like this in the Beatitudes, we are the salt of the earth, we're charged with stopping the rot and foulness of sin. Just look at how um, Paul described his motivation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. His motivation to go through the shipwrecks, the beatings, the imprisonments. He says this, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. If you look at church history, if you read it, you will always see that the great men of God in times past have been great intercessors of prayer. Revivals, you can't always draw them down to particular prayer meetings, but they've always been small groups, just the prayers of a few, pleading for God to have mercy and compassion and grace on the undeserving. And because of knowing that God is compassionate and merciful, we can see this in my final point, and I will be very brief. The, Lord, the mercy of the Lord is understood in his replies to Abraham. Had there been just a small handful of righteous people within the wicked city, it could have been saved. The Lord had been long-suffering with the city of Sodom. They'd had the witness of Abraham and Melchizedek in chapter 14. 
Uh, we looked a little bit at that for those who were there on Thursday evening, briefly touched on it. And despite the horrific sins that occurred within that city, um, which you can see in the next chapter, the Lord could still have forgiven them. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, we have these words. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Unlike what some people would have us believe, the Lord is not cruel, he's not vindictive, he's long-suffering, and he desires that all should turn to him. Sodom and Gomorrah had had their opportunities. If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, you'll see why I picked this chapter. Um, The prophet confronts and condemns the nation of Israel, his own people, for their wickedness. Um, I'm just going to read a few words from verse 47 to 50. This is his accusation towards them. He says, Your elder sister is Samaria. Now, Samaria was a picture of idolatry within the Bible. Just like Babylon was wickedness, Samaria was idolatry. And who dwells with her daughters to the north of you and your younger sister who dwells to the south of you is Sodom. That's a picture of sexual immorality. Sodom and her daughters... You did not walk in their ways, nor act according to their abominations. But as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of abomination before me. Therefore... I took them away as I saw fit. Samaria did not commit half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by all the abominations that you have done. And so his condemnation of Israel goes on. God's chosen nation was worse than Sodom. They knew better. They'd had the warnings of the prophets. But just look at the final words of that chapter, verse 63. Or verse 62 and 3. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord. The Lord was going to mercifully provide this atonement. And that, the atonement of God, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before judgment fell on the nation of Israel, grace and mercy and deliverance remained an option. Sodom and Jerusalem both had time and opportunities to repent of their sins and to turn away the judgment that did finally befall their city. And today, Christ's offer of salvation is open for all who repent of their sins. We have these words, don't we? The spirit of the God will not strive with a man forever. But then we have also these words, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The Lord in his mercy has made a way back for even the vilest sinner through the Lord Jesus Christ. His pure and his perfect life can be placed upon 
the vilest of sinners, and delivers all who believes upon him from the judgment to come. As Paul wrote to the church at Rome in chapter 2, verse 4, he said this to them, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Judgment can be turned through a trusting faith in Christ. So as we look at this passage and all that's going on around us, let us just take confidence in this thought as we finish that God is going to do what is right.